listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for uh, Holy Cats of Summer. It's June. Uh, my name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Eldritch Horror. Interesting. Yeah. My name is Bruce Garrick. My game of the week is not Planetscape Torment. It's a terrible thing to say, Bruce. Yeah. There's also no such game, I don't think. As Planetscape Torment? What are you playing at? What's that? What do you... What? I, my game of the week was not Planetscape Torment. Oh. <laughs> You're pretty clever, aren't you? You thought... You, you tricked me. All right. Fancy. I did, yeah. Fair, fair enough. So. Speaking so of not, Torment... Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, sorry. I, I had a great segue. Sorry. You do it. Here we go. Speaking of Torment... <laughs> yeah. I was playing a game last night uh-huh. uh, called uh, Hornet Leader. It's a solitaire game. And you fly a team of modern jets, and you're, you're, you're striking targets. I was actually, Bruce, I was in, in Syria, mm. but this was back in 2008. Really? So, yeah, eerily prescient. Um, mm. Although we actually, not, maybe not prescient, we haven't attacked Syria. But uh, this, this imagined that in 2008, some um, those standard evil types take over the government of a country. So you have to attack the country. It's an easy way out of the, the political thorniness of why would we attack Syria? Bad guys took over the government. Bad guys. Yeah, yeah. Nothing about, you know, They're chemical bad. attacks and homs or anything. It's just no. evil dudes in the government, so we're going to launch airstrikes. No red lines. Yeah, no, no, that. Yeah, no red lines have been crossed. Well, yeah, that is a red line. If bad guys take over the government, you've crossed a red line that's even worse than a chemical warfare red line. Uh, so here it is, 2008. I'm attacking uh, Syria. My flight leader, he's in an F-18E, uh, okay. a, a more advanced variant mm-hmm. of a Hornet that can carry more ordnance. Super he's, Hornet. It's a very good. Yes, exactly. Uh, he's got. Uh, he's the most skilled pilot in my. Um, a squadron, whatever you call it, in this particular sortie, mm-hmm. uh, we're attacking a, a small airfield. Is and he we're fast attacking, or slow? Uh, he's fast, yes, he's very oh, yeah. good. He's fast, his name is Doc. We're attacking this airfield because it is adding extra bandits to every other strike we do. And oh. that's really annoying. We don't want yeah. that. So one of the first priorities in our attack on Syria, take out this minor airfield. Mm-hmm. So uh, Doc is leading. Uh, I... I pull it off pretty well, but sometimes something can go wrong, and maybe a SAM site will pop off a shot at you. No big deal. You can evade it, and that means you roll twice. You're, you're normally rolling a D10. I think a SAM site on a 6, it'll add one point of stress to your dude. Okay. On a 8, it will uh, damage your, your aircraft, meaning you have to jettison all your ordnance. At this point, that was fine. I didn't care if I jettisoned my ordnance. I destroyed the target um and on a on a nine or zero on a d10 it will destroy your aircraft just outright like that doc is dead so uh sam site gets off a, a strike i'm like nah, no big deal i'm gonna evade and when you evade you just take a little stress on your pilot and you get to roll twice and you take the lower of the numbers so as long as I got on two rolls of seven or lower, Doc was going to be fine. Maybe his airplane would get hit, whatever. He might mm-hmm. take a little extra stress. No big deal. I roll two nines. Oh. I know. 99. I, nine, but not only that, I can only pick, I have to pick a nine. I, yeah. I, no matter what, he gets shot down. Yeah. That's terrible. That's torment is you shoot down my best freaking pilot on the first day of a 10-day campaign against Syria. Tom that's just you, not fair. You want to know what that's called? What? Historically accurate. Oh, history, man. God. You know what else it's called? It's called 
Dan Verson is a dick. <laughs> it's not called that. I take that back. Dan is awesome. Uh, he made this game. He yeah. did not know this was going to happen to me when he made the game. He but turned he it over. Had some, he had some premonition that it would. Maybe he engineered the whole thing so that this would happen to me specifically. It could be. Uh, let's talk to him and find out. What is he thinking? God. Um, so, uh, Bruce, you and I have been playing Dan's games in various formats for a very long time. He's been decades. making them for even longer. Decades, exactly. Uh, not many people we can say that about. Uh, so, Dan, as one of the old war horses, or as I'm about to call him, grandfather of board gaming, uh, let, let's see what he has to say about the industry, and specifically... Why would he kill Doc like that? Oh, my God, what a jerk. Oh. He's got a lot to answer for. I, I, it's a true story, by the way. I did quit playing at that point. I was like, well, <laughs> forget this game. I'm going to play something else. Uh, all right, so let's see what Dan has to say about that, and then uh, stick around, because afterwards, Bruce and I will be back to talk a bit more. Dan, all right, so one of the first things I want to ask you about, you have been making board games probably longer than I've been playing them. Uh, you've been at this at least a couple of decades. Tell me, as someone who is, I, I don't think you take any offense to that. Can, can we call you one of the grandfathers <laughs> of board gaming? Uh, wow, okay. Yeah, that's right. I'm giving you that title right now. <laughs> as one of the grandfathers of board gaming, uh, reminisce for me about the difference between the old days and the current days. How, what's the describe the basic arc of your career in board gaming as well? How is it different now than it was back then? Oh sure, okay. Uh, my first game came out in 1989, and that was Modern Naval Battles through 3W Worldwide War Games. And at that time, strategy gaming, hobby gaming was really kind of a garage industry, in that most companies had an employee or two. The printing was not nearly what it is today. Back then, most war games would print their counters on like color um, cardstock, pink or blue or whatever, with a single color black. It wasn't the full color print like you have today and it was a much smaller industry and then the big change that I saw was in the early 90s when Magic the Gathering came out that the income of Magic probably equaled all of board gaming put together I would guess several times over it you know actually playing a tabletop game because you know video games were out and going strong then was a whole new experience for people it became worldwide lots of people came in and it changed the industry. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think it was for the best because it brought in all of these new faces. And yes, they were playing collectible card games. But I think that without those games, people wouldn't have then had a chance to go to their local game stores and see the war games on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking some of those people did say, hey, it's Napoleon, it's Rommel. You know, I'm interested in history. And, you know, I think overall that helped the industry. Now, now in hindsight, obviously, I presume it's relatively easy to go back and say that ultimately this brought in new blood. But at the time, it must have been absolutely dismaying to see this new fantasy crazy stuff with this new business model coming in. Like, there must have been a time where you thought, oh, God, we're sunk. Uh, what was it like back then to see the rise of, of magic and Pokemon and stuff? You're exactly right. One of the things that happened was retailers and distributors could make far more money with collectible card games selling boosters and new starters and chase cards and all that other stuff than they could making traditional war games. So, of course, that's where they put their money. And for a couple of years, the war game market did take a huge dip 
rather than a store ordering five copies of a game, they might order one copy of a game. And, you know, it was business. It was money. And it did really change the industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming out the other side, it was a good thing. But you're right. It was very disheartening that we're putting out these games. Nobody wants to buy them. And yet now there's Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! And they're selling hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is that they sold. And there was a lot of envy. And I remember one of the common feelings in the industry at that time was collectible card games were a fad. All we have to do is weather the storm. They will go away in a couple years. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, there are dozens of collectible games that came and went. But the big ones are still out there, and they're still making lots of money. So I think it's one of those things where once you have an established industry, it does take them a while to kind of adapt to what's new. Because I remember a lot of people in the gaming industry had the same feeling about the Internet. Of Yes, it's the Internet, it's new, and it's, you know, whatever. But it's not going to affect our industry any. And I think the Internet has had a huge effect on our industry, um, specifically like Kickstarter. Um, and you I mentioned would say that's that, the other thing that was as big of a shakeup as the collectible card game. Uh, that's something that you guys have been taking advantage of. Like Kickstarter has been a huge boon for Danvers and games, right? It has. Um, as you know, we spe- we kind of specialize in historical games. Mm-hmm. And so if we put up a game for pre-order on World War II or Napoleon, we have an audience that knows our game quality. They pre-order the games. That gives us the funding we need to print the game. But if we want to do a game like Cthulhu or Zombies or something, that's not our market. And so we could never produce a game like that with our pre-orders. But with the world of Kickstarter, suddenly we're now opened up to millions of new people, some of which like Cthulhu and Zombies. That gives us the funding that we need. And Kickstarter's really changed the industry. If you look at the kind of games that Kickstarter does, there are plastic pieces, custom components, big glossy maps, cardboard maps, physical components that would have been impossible for a normal game company to produce five years ago. And yet now those games are out there in the world, and they're tabletop games. And so people see those games, and again, it creates interest. And I think that, again, it's a great spike for our industry, and it also has raised the stakes. People now, if you want to do mass market, you'd better have top-quality components, or they're not going to pay any attention to you. Well, so that probably makes it a little – would have made it a little more difficult for independent uh, developers, you know, who had limited means back in the day. I mean, there was the uh, you know the print and play and sort of desktop publishing. Uh, that was an, sort of an acceptable format for for a game distribution uh, at the time. Now, what you're, you seem to be saying is that uh, the standards are so high that you almost have to be professional uh, to even be independent. It is kind of right. true. Like to, to have some kind of to have an effective Kickstarter campaign, you kind of have to be able to offer what, what I think of as toys. Like you have to right. throw in all these little doodads. It's like a Happy Meal or something uh, to to uh, snag your audience. It's true. And one of the things that's both good and bad about Kickstarter is that you do have to, when you launch your Kickstarter, you'd better have an almost print-ready game because mm-hmm. people expect to see a video. They expect to see how to play videos. They I want to read the rules. Like, this. if I go to a Kickstarter, yeah. I want a PDF of the rules <laughs> finished. Like, I want to see how does this game work. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's hard to do that. And one of the things that have gotten a couple Kickstarter campaigns in trouble is that designing a great game, laying out a great game, getting the components ready is hurdle number one out of maybe ten towards actually delivering a game into the mail to somebody's mailbox. And what a lot of the companies don't realize is that sometimes printer quotes change. Sometimes how you, you know, spec out a game. Sometimes I don't know if they go to the effort of getting an actual printer quote. And you'll see Kickstarters from time to time, they meet their funding goals, they exceed their funding goals, and then things kind of go on hiatus for a while, and you don't hear about them for a couple of years. And, you know, I think that that's where having a legacy of pre-designing games and publishing games comes in handy, because hopefully somebody takes a look at our Kickstarters and says, hey, these guys have been designing games for 20 years. They put out four previous Kickstarter projects. They've all been published. These are somebody that you know I can trust at this point, as opposed to the new guy who has a flashy game, and you kind of hope that he's kind of done the back-end work to make sure that he can actually meet his printing costs, but you never know. One of my uh, – and Bruce is actually one of our uh, board game designer who we really like, a fellow named Martin Wallace – uh, he has dipped his toe into Kickstarter, and he made a uh, he's self-publishing now. Uh, but I think he has said he's on record as saying he he doesn't want anything to do with Kickstarter. Like it seems like he just wants to make games, and all this ancillary stuff that goes with Kickstarter he finds hugely discouraging. You, on the other hand, uh, it seems like you guys are, are just plowing ahead with this Kickstarter stuff. Uh, it seems to be doing very well for you. Uh, tell us about your most recent. Uh, Kickstarter project. What, what if I was to go look at Danvers and Games? Is Warfighter the last thing you guys have there? Right. The very last Kickstarter we did was uh, Warfighter, mm-hmm. which is a modern-day tactical card game. Um, each player controls one or more special forces soldiers. And what's great about the system is that it's for one to six players, mm-hmm. and it doesn't require any special rules for solitaire play because the game system handles all of the bad guys. So you get to cooperatively play. You are running through a city or through, you know, the countryside, going from point A to point B to complete your objective as your soldiers. Along the way, bad guys pop up. You get a whole slew of tactical weapons, assault rifles, submachine guns, rocket launchers to take out the bad guys while they're throwing stuff at you. And then you have inherent defenses. And what I like about it is it's a very team-oriented game so that I have a hand of action cards, so do you. But a lot of the cards, you can pay a cost in order to play the card for someone else. So, for example, the combat system is really cool. In one role, you resolve, do you hit the guy, do you miss the guy, do you make him take cover? Also, do you run out of ammo? So with a weapon like an M4 carbine, you can opt to fire it in semi-auto mode or burst mode. And burst mode gives you more attack die rolls. You have a better chance of hitting, but you also have a better chance of running out of ammo. Well, if you get a die roll with multiple shots, you can both take down your target as well as dumping out your magazine. So you're now out of ammo. Guys are about to shoot at you. You have a suppression action card, which will make them hit the dirt instead of shooting at you. But you're out of ammo, you're out of actions. I, on the other hand, have a reloading card, which gives you a free reload, but I have the card, not you. Well, by paying an experience point, I can play the card for you as your team member. You slap in a new magazine, suppress the bad guys, and we continue on with our mission. Um, 
what's great about Kickstarter is the Kickstarter not only funded our core game, but it also gave us enough funding to put out three expansions. The first expansion kind of is um, called Reloading. It gives you new weapons, more weapons, new action cards, new bad guys. The second expansion is called Stealth, and that's all of the sneaky side of warfare, the suppressed weapons and being evasive and taking cover. And then the third expansion is called Support, and that's where you can call in, like, sniper support. You can even call in UAVs to, you know, hellfire, you know, some stronghold. Mm -hmm. And it also allowed us to upgrade the components. I think the game initially had two decks of cards. With Kickstarter, we were able to bump it up to three decks of cards. We were originally going to use cardboard counters to represent the soldiers on the map, but because of Kickstarter, we were able to upgrade those to plastic figures which plastic figures is something we never could have done on our own, but only with the support of Kickstarter were we able to do that. And it really opened our eyes of, you know, all of those games that we looked at in the past of, you know, they've got plastic components, they're high-end, you know, that's far beyond what we could do. And truthfully, it still is on our budget. But with Kickstarter support, suddenly it opens up a whole new buffet of the kind of games that we can produce. And to us, it's like, you know, suddenly we can make a game that component-wise is equal to Wizards of the Coast or Fantasy Flight. And now it's up to us to put in the skill needed to actually, you know, put in the game design to support such high-level components. And, and these expansions you're mentioning, these these were basically stretch goals that you mean right. to hit? Okay, right. Exactly. Uh, so uh, I actually uh, looking re- reading about Warfighter. This was an example where I could read the the manual, like the manuals online. Um, I think I've played this before, not this specifically, but reading the manual, I was able to see. Oh, you guys are using the same basic system with modifications, of course, from a game called Rise of the Zombies that you made. Right. Uh, you move a team across a series of location cards, and the locations can spawn enemies. You know, in Rise of the Zombies, you're trying to get to the chopper. I think literally. Uh, right. <laughs> in, in Warfighter, you're basically working your way across the city. Um, some of the same ideas for how the team interacts, how the monsters or the bad guys appear. Uh, equipment, experience points. Um, you have made a, a career, and, and I think for some people, I, I could describe this and it would sound like it's something that, that's cheap or that's a way to cash in. Uh, I look at the way that you've modified your basic game systems over, for instance, the Leader series. Uh, okay. And I see some really ingenious things that you've done. Like, you started with, with Hornet Leader, there were other leader games uh, made along the way. Uh, it seems like you can't leave a system alone. Like you, right. <laughs> you create a system and you can't keep your hands off of it. You're constantly changing and updating and improving it. Um, I know that Bruce and I uh, are, are particularly fond of the leader series. Can you tell us a little bit about how that has evolved over its oh, history? Sure. <clears throat> Yes, excuse me. Uh, the Leader Series started back in about 1990. At the time, we were independent game designers. We designed a game for GMT called Hornet Leader. It came out. It sold well. And then a year or two later, they said, hey, what about doing some kind of close air support game? And so we designed Thunderbolt Leader. And that sold well also. A few years went by. The rights reverted. And it was something that Holly and I always wanted to release on our own, but that was years before DVG started. And so the games just kind of sat around for about 10, 15 years, not doing anything. And then in about 2008, 
Holly said, you know what? We've been independently designing games now because I do the design work and she does all of the development work. And she said, and you Holly know what? Is, Holly is your wife. Just yes, for Holly is my wife. For the, yes, for and yes, I am very, very lucky to have a wife that is also a game developer and is also willing to put up with this whole industry. Um, and in about 2008, she said, you know what? We've been designing, we've been developing, we've worked with printers, we've done everything. Why don't we start our own company and have more control over the kinds of products that we produce? And one of the things that I found along the way is that Holly is really good at coming up with the big ideas that change our life. And so we gave it a try. And first we put out Field Commander Rommel and then Alexander, and then we revisited the old modern naval battles design and put out a fresh version of that. And then we said, hey, we got Hornet Leader, we got Thunderbolt Leader. They're designed, they're done. And I said, hey, let's just pull them off the shelf because we had the copies of the old games, replace the artwork, send them to the printer. It's a month project, no big deal. And Holly said, you know what? We haven't played those games in like 25 years. Maybe we should like get them out, dust them off, play a few turns just to kind of see mm-hmm. what we see. And I kind of fought her on that. And eventually, fine, you know, I think she actually, like, got the game out of the closet, put it out on the table, drug me over. (laughs) We played it, and we found out that game designs of 1990 are not the same as designs of 2010. The the old designs, they were filled with modifiers and procedures and lots of rules and lots of exceptions. And we looked at each other and it's like, wow, we could not sell this today. People would be driven insane. (laughs) And so... We took the core elements of Hornet Leader, we scraped away a lot of the details and fine-tuned fiddliness, and we ended up with a game that could actually be played and enjoyed in 2010. And then a couple years later, we said, okay, we've you know got a few dollars set aside, let's reprint Thunderbolt. And sometimes it takes me a little while to learn things, so my idea at the time was, I know, we'll scrape off the artwork, put on new artwork, send it to the printer. And Holly said, you know, we did this with Hornet Leader. <laughs> Maybe we should actually play it. And we gave it a try. And again, same problems as Hornet Leader, slow, clunky, detailed. We kept the core of the game. We put in all fresh systems. And um, it was really well received. Dan, it sounds like Holly is the uh, Marsha Lucas to your George Lucas, in that a lot of, in that you're the idea guy, <laughs> and, and Holly's sort of whipping your ideas into shape. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Go, go ahead. Oh. Yeah, you're entirely right. She comes up with the big ideas. I want to charge forward. And she's more of the, hey, why don't we check to make sure we actually know what we're doing before we send something to the printer? And so between the two of us, you know, we're a great team. So I I want to ask you specifically about some of the leader series because that's how I most know your your games uh, Bruce and I have played a little down in flames I know Bruce has more experience with that series than, than I do but for me when I think of Danvers and games it's the leader series um, okay. so uh, it, it started with Hornet leader then you did was it Thunderbolt Apache leader back then or it was just Thunderbolt leader way back then first it was hornet leader and then it was thunderbolt apache leader okay, so the apaches were in there okay right yeah the apaches at the time were brand new you know because this was back in like 1991 mm-hmm. so they were just replacing the hueys back then the huey cobras and the game sat idle and then about 10 years ago we started doing the pdf vassal games which are like the uh, the print and play or the play on your desktop kind of a virtual tabletop 
And so that's when we did Hornet Leader 2, which was a revision of the original Hornet Leader game. And we did that for a couple of years. And then Holly said, hey, we should do our own, you know, publishing. And so we looked to Hornet Leader. We then looked to what we had done with Hornet Leader 2 to then produce Hornet Leader Carrier Air Operations, which is the most recent iteration of the series. And it kind of cleans up Hornet Leader 2, better graphics, better components. And then with Thunderbolt, it was the same thing. We, you know, brought it up to modern-day standards, and then we then released Phantom Leader, which is a leader game. You can command a squadron of phantoms in Vietnam. Same basic idea. And then the most recent release for the leader series was Hornet Leader, the Cthulhu Conflict, which has kind of a weird mashup of modern-day hornets and Cthulhu rising from the depths of the ocean. And so it's gone through quite a few twists and turns over the years. Well, I just wanted to ask you about how did you come up with that in the first place? Because you know that came out in 1990. I can't only the only solitaire games I can really think of of note around that time. I mean, there were there were some, but um, you know there was um, Ambush, obviously John Butterfield's, uh, which was completely sort of different genre. It's almost its own kind of game genre in itself. Um, but uh, you know, B17 Queen of the Skies and Patton's Best, and and all of a sudden you come out with this really sophisticated uh, solitaire game about hornets. Uh, right. how, how, did you, I mean, there were not that. that I, I feel that that game was actually one of the groundbreaking games uh, in sort of board game history. Talk talk a little bit about how that came, how the whole thing came about. Yeah, yeah. Why would someone make a solitaire game back then? That that's amazing to me, Dan. Where where did that come? Let, let me guess. Oh. It was Holly's idea. <laughs> um, at that <laughs> time, I don't remember where the solitaire aspect came in. The original idea for doing Hornets came from GMT because they're in Hanford and they have a Navy base um, in a uh, nearby city that has a squadron of Hornets there. And so they said, hey, let's do a game about Hornets. And I think what happened was the game started off as a two-player game. And remember, this was about the time of Desert Storm. And so it was, okay, one guy gets to be the Hornets, one guy gets to be the Iraqi defenses, but that didn't prove real popular because no one wants to be the bad guys. Bruce, you're going to have to play, when we play that prototype, you're going to have to be Iraq. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so it then just slowly kind of developed of minimizing the role that the Iraqi player had until finally a lot of what he was doing was automated. And then we made the leap to, hey, let's just cut out that second player altogether. And at the time, we weren't really sure how it was going to go, because at the time, social games, two-player, four-player, six-player, was the norm. And it turned out to be a really, you know, groundbreaking decision, because as time has gone by over the last 20 years, games have become a little harder to get people together on a social level. And so we're seeing a lot of success with our solitaire games. So through a random die roll, we just kind of went down a lucky path starting a series of solitaire games. One of the hallmarks of the leader series, uh, and it's gone in some inter- in some weird directions I want to ask you about in a moment, but one of the hallmarks as it stands now, when I play, what it, one of the things I love about the leader series is its obvious affection for the hardware of the period. And partly the actual ordinance, like you obviously 
care enough and you have to do this to play Hornet leader or Phantom leader or uh, uh, Thunderbolt Apache leader is you have to care about the difference between like a, a Maverick and a Walleye. Like that's a right. big part of the appeal. But more to the point, a huge part of the appeal is you have to care about the difference between the I guess it's the C, E, and F variants of the Hornet. You know, you right. have to care about whether or not you're going to spend your points on an advanced Thunderbolt or one of the early A10A models. Um, right. There's a huge love of airplanes, uh, of aircraft in these <laughs> games. Um, and I respond to this, Dan, because I grew up making model airplanes. And at some point as a kid... I was fascinated with airplanes, and it, it was, you know, like some kids do with dinosaurs or whatever. I was an airplane kid, and I never quite lost that. And I even, that's how I got into computer games, was through flight simulators. Um, and when I sit down to play a leader game, it taps into some of that same childhood enthusiasm I have for this, this, this military hardware, these airplanes. I'm assuming you have the same thing. Uh, oh, and yeah. if so, where did that come from? Where did you pick that up? That, I have to give credit to my dad. He worked at Lockheed during the 1950s and 1960s, and he helped to build airplanes like the F-104 Starfighters, the Super Constellations, the P-3 Orions. He was there doing some of the test flights of the U-2. And as growing up with him, we'd go on long car drives, and he would tell me stories about working out at their Palmdale plant and how it was blistering hot in summer while he's crawling around inside of these aluminum airplanes, oh, you know, God. putting in rivets. <laughs> or he's mm. out there in the freezing cold of Palmdale, you know, during the winter time, again, all bundled up, you know, doing his best to use a riveting gun and not get himself killed. <laughs> and that, his enthusiasm and all of those stories, when I then got into, like, high school, I'd go into the library during some um, summer school or lunchtime after school, and I just get books off the shelf of airplanes for World War II. I didn't do a lot of dating back then. <laughs> and um, I, my love of airplanes just continued. And then when I got to be a game designer, going down the military path was just kind of a natural extension. And luckily, you know, the leader series with the aircraft, the Down in Flames series, the World War II aircraft, because a lot of the times that I would research in the library, it was on World War II so that when it came time to actually do Down in Flames, I was familiar with all of those aircraft types. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of one of the odd things about being a game designer, is that sometimes you do a game design on a subject you really know. So for me, it was World War II and airplanes. Other times, there's like a driving market force to do a game. For example, uh, when we did Field Commander Napoleon, going into Napoleon... I knew that Napoleon was a ruler of France back at a time when they used swords. <laughs> and and that was about it. And then over six months of doing book research, internet research, I found, you know, all of the details of all of the battles. I happened to learn the name of his favorite horse, which was Morongo, after a battle in Italy, for example. And so sometimes you get to learn something on a subject that you never thought that you would have learned anything about. And so Holly and I go through like these six-month periods of learning all kinds of stuff about Napoleon or Alexander, and then we move on to some other subjects. So it's a very weird research-oriented kind of lifestyle. Hmm. So the, you mentioned knowing a lot about World War II airplanes, so I assume that you didn't have to do a lot of research uh, for another what I thought was a brilliant game, which was uh, Down in Flames, which I think came out shortly after 
the Hornet leader, uh, Thunderbolt Patch leader series. Right. Talk talk a little bit about that because that that happened to be one of my favorite uh, games. I can I can tell you that um, Hornet leader and Down in Flames I came upon about the same time, and I was fascinated by the idea that you had this solitaire game. Uh, but then just shortly after that, I met some uh, people at the place where I was uh, living at the time who played board games, and we played a ton of Down in Flames, and I kind of never picked up Hornet Leader again since I had all these <laughs> opponents. Um, but I love that game, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, about that. Okay. Uh, the inspiration for Down in Flames, to me, the core of the system was the topping system of the cards and listing on a card which other cards you could play to cancel so, for example, if I'm shooting at you and I play an In My Sights card and you have a barrel roll card in your hand, down at the bottom of the card it would list In My Sights. So that would tell you that if you play that card, my In My Sights card now is canceled. So I say, aha, I shoot you with an In My Sights. You say, aha, I barrel roll, I'm out of the way. Well, it doesn't just end there. I can then look into my hand and say, well, I've got a tight turn, and down at the bottom it says it responds to a barrel roll. So I say, aha, I'm staying with you, I'm turning with you. Whoever plays the last card determines whether or not the attack succeeds. So if I, as the attacker, play the last card, I score hits. If you, as the defender, play the last card, you got out of the way of the attack. And I think that that brought a lot of, like, the drama to air combat, because at that time in the 90s, air combat games tended to be almost like accounting exercises. Yeah, so it's almost deal- like dancing, Dan. Like it's a move, yeah. a counter move, and you match this move, and it's like choreography right. or something to it. Yeah. And there was strategy of, after a while, you would get to know the percentages of which cards would respond to which cards. Right. And so... You oh, know, that's dirty. That's strategy. a dirty trick. That sounds like something Bruce would do. Like, <laughs> like counting cards? Oh, that's right. terrible. Yeah. Or you play, you know, here's my in my sights for one point of damage. I try to bleed out all of your defense cards because I have enough burst left to fire one for three points of damage. That also sounds like something Bruce would do. <laughs> 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 oh. yeah. We, that, so that was, yeah, that was a, that, the, the game was so well set up for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah, assume you played were, that with Holly a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. Um, Holly... And I played Down in Flames, you know, like you said, that was the early 90s. Probably one of my favorite memories playing Down in Flames with Holly, it would have been about 1993, so I think we were working on 8th Air Force at the time. We were living in a little, little apartment in Pomona, we are playtesting at like 3 in the morning, she is very pregnant, and she... As I don't know if you know, sometimes when women are pregnant, they get a little emotional. So, so we're playing, and outside the window, there's a guy, obviously drunk, walking back and forth. And I don't know what his background was, but he was yelling at the top of his lungs, I ain't going to play no effing games, over and over. I don't want to play no effing games. And Holly looked at me and said, you know what? I know exactly how that guy feels. <laughs> <laughs> and soon after that, the police showed up. But, um, but yeah, we've played the games a lot. We played the early versions. Later on, when we started DVG, the rights had reverted, so we put out new versions, a little bit more streamlined rules, but keeping the core elements. And, you know, we're... 
pretty much a game-playing family. Our son, who's now 20 years old, he helps to play test. He goes through emails. He's part of the company. Our daughter, who's 16, she started playing games. When we get a new game shipment in, we all go over to the office. We set up a little assembly line with boyfriends and girlfriends of theirs at the time, and we pack out games. And then later on, we treat everyone to pizza. So it's a very family-oriented kind of business, and I'm very happy with it. Dan, it sounds literally like a mom-and-pop operation. Oh, it is. It is <laughs> mom and pop and two kids and whoever friends we happen to wrangle in for a play test. So, uh, Down in Flames, uh, I haven't played it since I think Bruce and I played it for, for an article maybe six, seven years ago. Um, are they fixed decks for a specific plane, or explain for the listeners uh, from the top level, like how does Down in Flames work? I know how the card plane works, but do you buy a deck of cards for a plane? Uh, explain how that works. Okay, um, you buy a boxed game. Within that box, you have a couple hundred action cards, which players commonly draw out of. You then have a couple hundred airplanes, which are divided into leaders and wingmen. Your leader, you actually hold a hand of action cards for. And the plane has a couple really simple stats. Its performance tells you how many cards you're allowed to hold in your hand at a given time. Its horsepower tells you how many, the maximum number of cards you're allowed to draw per turn. Its burst rating tells you how many shots you can fire per turn. And it all, some planes also have a firepower rating, which adds bonus damage to your attacks if they succeed. And so you draw cards out of a common deck, you hold them in your hand. Your wingman goes by automated rules and that you draw a mini hand for him. He plays what he can to help your leader maneuver and shoot at the bad guys. And then when his turn's over, he discards his cards. Your leader, though, he, you get to keep your cards from turn to turn. And so throughout the course of the game, you play cards to maneuver on the enemy fighters. And one of the aspects of the game that I'm really happy of is with the maneuvering system. You start off with the nose of my airplane card facing the nose of your airplane card. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And so my airplane get, might get, like, one burst, if I can do, like, one attack on you. If I then play a maneuvering card that you don't counter, I'm now facing the side of your right, airplane. Right, right. Which means now I get to shoot twice at you, and you can't fire at me until you maneuver back. But, you know, maybe your, your wingman will play a maneuvering card and help you out. And so eventually you get on the guy's tail, you get extra bursts, you're shooting people down, and... When the planes take so much damage, they get flipped over to their damage side. Their stats get reduced. You do a couple more points of damage, and they go down in flames, as we say. <laughs> Everybody take a drink when you say the name of the game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of drinking, I mean, that's a, the, the, the back-and-forth interaction with that game, I mean, I can tell how it would probably has was uh, influenced by sort of a family playing environment. Because I just remember when we played it, you know, I was probably in my early, mid-20s or something, and, uh, you know, we would go over to this guy's apartment and we would, uh, you know, have beers and then yeah. we would start playing Down in Flames and then, you know, it would get progressively more violent as you sort of, you know, oh, I'm going to counter you with that and I throw your card and then the guy would, and then you start standing up and sort of whipping the cards down at the table as you're standing there and finally, like, you're like, oh, you have no more cards and then your plane blows up and then everybody gets, you know, drinks. <laughs> right. But, um, it's a very, it was a very interactive, uh, you know, it's a wonderful uh, game to play face to face, I just I cherish those those uh, those memories of playing that game. Tom and I actually played the computer version, right? Uh, which came out uh, in uh, I gosh, it must have been like two thousand and I don't know five or so. Uh, about ten years ago. Yeah, talk a little bit about uh, converting that and, and what you had to go through for that. 
because there's also, by the way, just to talk about this as well, Dan. There's a there's a, an iPad version of Phantom Leader. So right. you've had a sort of an on again off again relationship with with these these ideas of translating your tabletop games into digital formats. Well, there's a PC version of Hornet Leader too. I was just playing it. As oh yeah, yeah. And you just told me right. about that, Bruce. Right. Yeah, what we like to do is, because they are two different markets, we are trying to port as many of our tabletop games to the electronic world as we can. One of the major hiccups that we run into there is that most people who are talented programmers have a day job programming, and so they kind of want to be paid up front for their efforts, which is something you know we can't really afford to do. So what we do is we say, okay, tell you what, if you program now, then we will split the profits with you later, and then you get royalties as the games sell. And it works, you know, so far I think that they're all happy with it, but it does take a certain amount of dedication of a programmer to stick with it day after day, knowing that they're not going to get a paycheck for six months or a year. And so you're right, the first game we ported over was Down in Flames, that was through the Battlefront company, Mm -hmm. and it sold really well, we even had an online forum, a lobby where people could arrange dogfights, and great sales, Uh, we released an East Front expansion of it for the Soviet planes, Mm -hmm. and then we released Hornet Leader through Matrix Games, and that was a Mm -hmm. PC game, and then recently we released Phantom Leader on the iPad, and I think that the iPad is a real good future for these kind of tabletop games because it gives you a nice, you know, good-sized screen on, like, a cell phone or something. And yet it's a very common platform. Lots of people have iPads and cell phones, you know, iPhones. And it's something that we do really want to push forward on in the future because the advantage of a solitaire game on an electronic format is that you don't have to program all of the AI for the opponent because the system already has it built in. So from a programming point of view, a good portion of the job is already taken care of. And I, I'll say, Dan, like one of the uh, the main disincentive for me to sit down and play Phantom Leader, Hornet Leader, Thunderbolt Apache Leader is the setup time because they're very chit-intensive games in right. that I like to in order to make the actual gameplay flow as smoothly as possible, when I sit down to play those, I've worked out my own kind of quote-unquote interface where I've decided here's where the weapon chits go and I sort them into piles by the particular weapons. Uh, here's like there's this whole tabletop thing that I set up before I play and it takes a while to get going, but once I'm playing, it, it facilitates every the pacing much better. Uh, right. I would love to do an in-run around that with just a good electronic version of some of these games, although I would miss the tactile version. I think that's a lot of why people... That's part of why some people still really enjoy solitaire games. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. There's a tactile difference between rolling a die and pushing the roll die button, because either way, you know it's a random number, but there's just something unique about seeing the die on the table. Well, and even the chits, Dan. Like when I say chit intensive, that's not a bad thing because one of the things I love, I, I, I've, I've been playing some Thunderbolt Apache Leader, the reprint of that, and okay. I'm really startled at some of the awesome things you've done with that. But then last night I went back and I spent some time with uh, Hornet Leader, just to think, wow, is Thunderbolt Apache Leader does it obsolete Hornet Leader? And for various okay. reasons, I think it doesn't because they do very different things. Right. But one of the things I love in Hornet Leader. Uh, and it couldn't do this if it wasn't a chit-intensive game, is the idea of when you uh, are, are setting up an airstrike, 
you place on the board what are called the sites, and those are the fixed locations for SAMs, for troops, uh, for, for artillery pieces, for AAP or anti-aircraft guns. You set that up, and then you look at that, and you set up what your airplane, airplanes are going to be armed with and where they're going to approach. And then one of the very last things you do is you determine the air cover, the enemy air cover, by drawing out of the same cup uh, a chit for each bandit. And the way that cup works is on one side there's a ground site, and on the other side there's a bandit. But most of the other site sides where the bandit would be, they say, hey, no bandit, you know, you're off for free. So yeah. you're drawing all these chits to see what kind of air cover is defending this site that you're attacking. And there's this great tension about how many of the no bandit chits have I drawn? You know, how many are left in the cup? Uh, and, and if this was just something under the hood on an iPad version, it would play very differently. You know, I'm keenly aware when I pull out the chits how many bandits and no bandits are left. Um, right. And that's a big part of the tactile appeal is I can sort of finger through the cup beforehand <clears throat> and see how many bandits are still in there. Um, yeah, that's true. One of the things that Holly does during playtesting, which we never really made a ruling on whether it's legal or not, but she does like to squeeze every last modifier that she can out of the game, mm-hmm. is that while she's placing her sights, mm-hmm. she always looks at the back to see whether it's a no bandit or not. Yep. Kind so of like Dan- counting... Like you say, cards. <laughs> right, you say there's no rule about this, but but my friend, once again, I think Holly has trumped you. At it is in the rules. <laughs> you clearly say in the rules that you are, and maybe Holly snuck this in there in the last revision. Okay. But you clearly say in the rules, hey, it's okay to look at the other side. Uh, okay. So so somewhere along the line, uh, along the the process, this was ruled as legal because I do it. <laughs> okay, it could be because she does do a lot of the final rule editing. Uh-huh. And you know maybe she got tired of me saying that. She she was cheating. So. <laughs> well, if Bruce can count cards and down in flames and do that kind of shenanigans, I feel like in a solitaire game, I should be able to look at the other side of the chits. So. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, Hornet Leader, uh, I, I, I want to touch on this idea that, you know, when I got Thunderbolt Apache Leader, the reprint of it, which uh, I think is it came out two years ago, uh, and it's an update of the original Thunderbolt Apache Leader, uh, my initial feeling when I started playing it was, how could I ever go back to Hornet Leader? And I felt something similar playing Hornet Leader about Phantom Leader. How could I ever go back to Phantom Leader? And I don't, and, and when I then go back to the earlier games, I kind of feel like, whoa, wait a minute, this is better. How could I ever play Hornet Leader again? <laughs> I feel like all three of those have a unique appeal. They do something very different, and in a way, it, it honors the subject material by by calling out the differences in these different types of warfare. And I just want to touch on what what I think each of the three games' unique appeal is. Um, okay. Phantom Leader is very tactical, um, and this was only something that I think was added in the reprint. Is there's a I forget if it's like a facing or, or there's this sense of terrain uh, interfering with whether or not an enemy unit can attack you. So there's this tactical interplay as I'm setting up the units and as I'm deciding what angle I want to attack. There's a sense of getting in low and coming in from behind a mountain. Um, And it's this very early... Uh, very, very like mid 20th century airstrike mentality. You know, it's not all standoff. I have to get an airplane over the target. This is very Vietnam, by the way. I have to get an airplane over the target to deliver the ordnance. 
And there's some risk involved with that. And there are even political limitations. That's a big part. I think there's a whole track for that. That's a big part of Phantom Leader. Whereas Hornet Leader is much more about standoff warfare. You know, a good round of Hornet Leader, the enemy never even gets to roll against me. I love that about Hornet Leader, (laughs) is that I can have an airstrike where I'm never in any danger whatsoever. Everything's pulled off perfectly. Maybe the only danger is whether or not it takes two Mavericks rather than one Maverick to take out a specific site. And it's the sense of the super powerful modern ordinance at work and that the standoff capability of warfare. That's America. That's America. It's like, F yeah. And (laughs) where a lot of the challenge comes from there is in the strategic level. Which site do I attack when? And how risky is it? Um... Whereas Thunderbolt Apache leader, and this is my most recent discovery, man, the tactical interplay there, it is way more rough and tumble. You get those A-10s down low, and there's bullets and missiles pinging (laughs) off of them, and those mothers are super tough. You can just prang the hell out of one of those planes, and it still comes in and lands, and it gets repaired, and it goes out the next day. Um, And it's kind of some of that same phantom leader mentality, but with these super tough, hardened, just badass modern planes. The Apaches are a little more frail, but they do this really cool thing with hovering. They can just sit in a hex and blow away everything, just hovering. They don't even have to fly over the targets. Um, So I feel like all three of these games is still hugely relevant for your gameplay approach. Um, So I guess I don't have a question so much as I... uh, Well, you know what? I do have a question. How awesome is your game? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, are these Eureka moments for you? Uh, Have there been games you've wanted to make where you couldn't quite make it feel different? Um, How did you know enough to go forward with, with all three of these approaches and know that you are making something qualitatively different rather than just updating with new planes or new campaign cards or whatever a game that you had previously made? It's kind of a mix. Sometimes it's an inspiration. We knew that we wanted Thunderbolt to feel like you were down in the weeds, skimming over the ridgelines, and the kind of weapons that you're using in Thunderbolt and the kind that are being fired at you are what's called a close air support scale. So you literally have guys with AK-47 shooting up at you, as opposed to Hornet Leader, where you tend to deal more with big artillery pieces, large surface-to-air missiles. And so one of the feels of Thunderbolt that we wanted was some guy fires at you, and he puts a hole in your wing. And it's like, well, that sucks. I've got a hole in my wing. I'm still flying, but there's a hole in my wing. It, you know, a hit doesn't bring down an A-10, and you can lose an engine. They're designed to lose an engine and keep on flying. And it's this battered kind of B-17 almost feel of you get uh, back to the airbase, mm-hmm. and part of your wing's gone, one engine's gone, you've got holes in your cockpit glass, the HUD doesn't quite work like it used to. And it's like you roll it off to the ground crew, and then you say, patch it up, boys, I'm flying it tomorrow. <laughs> and... Sometimes they get the whole thing patched up, sometimes not so much, and you fly it out again the next day. And with something like Phantom, and so that was kind of planned, Phantom Leader kind of came across more because of a problem. We had first designed Hornet Leader, and we had all of the weapons and the stats and everything all established, and then we went to Phantom Leader, and we found that one of the problems with Phantom is that warfare in the 1970s was much closer in. Like you said, you didn't have a lot of standoff weapons. The surface weapons didn't have the ranges. And so what you tended to have initially in Phantom Leader was a lot of same-hex combat. 
and that's boring because the fun of the leader games is you're being fired at from the sides and you have to decide is that threat over to my right worth engaging or worth letting get a die roll or two mm-hmm. and so we kind of zoomed in the scale on phantom leader leader a little bit and that's where those angle of attack counters that you mentioned for the sites came in of to add a little bit more detail of now that I am zoomed in a little bit maybe they put a triple A site in a perfectly good location but there's now a hill separating me from that site and he can't shoot at me the other thing we threw in with Phantom like you said there were a lot of political limitations where they would say because of the threat of collateral damage you must enter the target from this angle you must exit the target at that angle and it so happens that that happens to be right across a stretch of their best defenses well, the people in Washington didn't care. You know, they were in it for the political side. And so because the mechanisms of Hornet Leader didn't quite transfer well to Phantom Leader, it pushed us to say, okay, what made Vietnam different than modern-day Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran? And that's where we got a little bit more touchy-feely with the tactical details. And one of the things we found in game designs is honestly one of the problem areas of a game can honestly become one of the showcases of the game if you know you put a little work and you know fudge it just right so that it captures the feel of the situation. Uh, Bruce has recently talked to a lot of, uh, and we, we spoke to a, a fellow named Volker Rumke who's done a Vietnam game on, on this podcast, and Bruce on another podcast called Three Moves Ahead has been speaking to some Vietnam War game designers about the unique approach of, of modeling Vietnam in, in war games. Uh, you're not done with that as the, the newest, I say newest, but there is an upcoming leader game which revisits Vietnam, correct? Right. We have right now up for pre-order on the site a game called Huey Leader, and it is a follow-on to Thunderbolt Apache Leader. It's close air support, except instead of having A-10s and Apaches, you're now going to have different kinds of Hueys. You're going to have the classic Huey. You're going to have the Huey Cobras. You're going to get the um, C-47 Puff the Magic Dragons back then. So picture... Um, there are A-10s. Or A-1, um, I mean, I'm sorry, A-1 Sky Yeah, Raiders. right, the A-1 Sky Raiders. Um, the Vietnam would have unfolded very differently if there had been A-10s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the neat things is it's going to be the same. You know, you're going to have your hex terrain counters out there. You're going to go blow up the Vietnamese bad guys. But one of the big things that the Hueys did was they actually did air transports of troops in and out of battle zones. And some of your missions actually involve loading some troop counters onto your Hueys. You have to then land them in the terrain hexes. The troops then disperse. There's then a simplified combat system to handle your army guys versus the NVA. You then have to get your Hueys out of there as quick as you can because you're going to get shot at if you're on the ground. So while your um, infantry is engaging the enemy forces, you're then hovering around the battlefield providing air support. Or maybe you're rescuing a team that needs extraction under fire. And so it adds this whole new element that Thunderbolt doesn't have all in the Vietnam era with the rockets and the miniguns and the grenade launchers. So I think it's, you know, like you said, it's the core of Thunderbolt is there, but it kind of gives it this whole new feel because it's Vietnam. One of the things that I really like about, uh, and as I describe this, Dan, I think to myself, man, I could never go back to Hornet Leader or Phantom Leader. One of the things I really <laughs> like about Thunderbolt Apache Leader is 
you know, you, you set up these hexes to make a random, uh, a sort of a randomly generated battlefield, and it's very tactical. You know, the grids in Phantom Leader, there's some tactics there, but certainly the grids in Hornet Leader, they're more abstract. It's just an approach area and a central area, and you're just sort of zipping across them. But there's this very interactive feel with this randomized battlefield in Thunderbolt Apache Leader, and one of the things that I love about it is it, it brings to life, it creates this sense of a fluid, changing battlefield. Uh, and the way you do it in Thunderbolt Apache Leader is the risk of pop-up chits making new, unexpected units. So you look at the battlefield, you think, okay, these are the units I have to deal with. If you fly at high altitude, it can add new units. And the idea, right. I guess, being that they see you and then they join the fray. Uh, furthermore, there's this idea of each turn you roll uh, for cover. And that means some of the units will hide, and you can only attack them by going directly to them. It right. sort of... Uh, gimps your ability for standoff warfare. So the battlefield is constantly changing as you're moving the planes around, as you're expending ordnance. Uh, and I'm really excited to see how, you know, it seems like there's a great opportunity to play with the asymmetrical warfare in Vietnam using this idea of a fluid changing battlefield, of these these unexpected events that happen while you're actually there in, in the field. Um, right. Yeah, you're right. Um, the fluid aspect of units are popping in and out of cover. You've got to get your troops and you have to extract the troops. There can also be political considerations where some of the hexes you are not allowed to attack because there's civilian targets there. And so it's going to make for, I think the people are going to really like it because one of our goals is, for example, if you first bought and played Hornet Leader and then you pick up Phantom Leader, you're going to go through the rule book and you're going to say, okay, yeah, I know how to do it, know how to do it. Oh, that's new. Know it, know it, know it, that's new. And so people can get up and running with a new game in very little time. We try to keep maybe 70, 80% of the rules the same within a series on purpose because I think people would be kind of disappointed if you played Hornet Leader and then you picked up Phantom Leader and it was a whole different game because I think it's kind of almost like a movie sequel where you're expecting different, but also kind of the same. Sure. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do between Thunderbolt and also Huey, is people are going to say, oh, yeah, I know this. It's got the hexes. I'm going to fly around. You know, there's trees. I'm going to blast stuff. But I get to drop in troops, extract troops. There's civilian targets I've got to avoid. And I think it's going to add a nice new angle for the game and keep it fresh. Uh, the most recent leader game kind of breaks all the rules. Uh, why, don't, why don't you tell us about this? And I'm sure Bruce hates this, by the way. Here you are taking historical, actual hardware, and you're adding HP Lovecraft. Bruce, isn't that yeah. just terrible that someone would do that? Well, I mean, if they can show the research that proves that that happened, then I'm fine with it. <laughs> so, Dan, why don't you tell us what happened in, I think, is it 2015? When is the first scenario in, in it? Yes, I believe it's 2015. All right, what can we look it, forward to next year in 2015? <laughs> tell us what's going to happen. Well, you know, because of the global climate change, you know... Oh, I didn't know that it was a climate change related oh, thing. What do you mean? Nice. That's throw that in. Um, <laughs> the idea is that this is an expansion to Hornet Leader. It's called Hornet Leader of the Cthulhu Conflict. It came out about a year ago. It actually came up as just a random suggestion on one of the wargaming websites. Somebody said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could fly around and launch AIM-9 Sidewinders at Cthulhu creatures and you know take on the big guys, maybe, oh, I know, we'll have a nuke, ha, ha, ha. Well, we were kind of watching those forums, and Holly and I kind of looked at each other and said, you know, 
we've both read Lovecraft. Cthulhu is awesome. I don't see why Relea couldn't rise from the ocean. The Cthulhu hordes come forth to take over the world, and there you are with your brave squadron of hornets Mm -hmm. to go take on the bad guys. And, you know, it just kind of evolved out of that random suggestion thread on a website. And within a few months, we had an insanity system in place so that if you get too close to some of the Cthulhu creatures, your pilots suffer insanity, and they'll go through different levels that might limit their capability. Or, you know, some pilots, for example, must fly every day. You know, that's kind of their compulsion. But their stress is off the charts, but it's kind of bad. Um, And then in some of the scenarios in the game, your pilots actually get bonuses if they are really insane, because now they're kind of getting in tune with this whole Cthulhu-like reality, and so their level of insanity actually counts as a positive modifier for their attacks. And so you fly around, and there's flying Cthulhu creatures like the Biaki, there's ground Cthulhu creatures, there's some of the big old ones down there that you're trying to take out, and it's a really fun spin on Hornet Leader. Um, One of the things, for example, like you mentioned earlier, planning is a big part of Hornet Leader. Well, when you get close to these Cthulhu-like targets, it kind of warps space and time. And so in that case, what we did was we numbered the positions on the battle map, 1 through 20, and we threw in a D20 with the game. And so you roll to see which area each of your aircraft appear in. So it's like you're going, you're flying along, it's happy blue sky, suddenly it turns green, you're in Cthulhu world, it's kind of foggy, and now you're looking around trying to spot your target, trying to spot your wingman, coordinate your attack. You know, your standoff guys happen to blip in directly over the target. Your bomber guys are at the edges. The guys without the air-to-air are in a flock of Biaki. And for the first turn or two, it's just chaos trying to sort out this situation and accomplish your mission. And it's the same rules as Hornet Leader, but it's just a whole different spin on it. And I want to say, too, it's not always that chaos. Like, that chaos is there, but a lot of what you're fighting are, uh, I think you call them, it's like cultists. Like, they're conventional forces that are run by cultists. So there's still some conventional combat, but you then liberally throw in these crazy tweaks that completely upend this idea of planning, which is the cornerstone of the, the Hornet Leader series, is that I create a plan and I execute it. This whole Cthulhu conflict thing is all about throwing wrenches into those plans, and then I do as best I can dealing with the insanity and the randomness. And I think there's even like one ground installation that just zaps my airplane to a new spot. Like it's just totally about just screwing up my plans. Uh, Right. One of the sites moves you to an adjacent. One of the sites inflicts insanity loss, um, all kinds of fun random events. Um, that, like you said, you can plan for, but you've also got to be flexible enough, maybe double up your ordinance a little bit more than you would have. One of the things I found in Hornet Leader is people tended to say, this airplane's my air-to-air guy, this is my standoff guy, this is my close-in bombing guy. And what we found in Cthulhu Conflict is that you need to mix the ordinance around a little bit more mm. because you're not quite sure who you're going to start off engaging. Right, right. So, uh, Dan, would you... Are you implying then that uh, that a tactical nuke would work against Cthulhu, or, or would it be defeated by non-Euclidean geometry? I think the game does answer that this question, Bruce. It but does. yeah, how do you how do you respond to that, Dan? Yeah. Well, based on my expertise on non-Euclidean geometry, um, <laughs> you do have limited access to a couple nukes, and you can fly over and nuke some of the larger targets. But you do have a limit. I think you can use like maybe one or two per campaign. It's based on the length of the campaign. So 
it adds this nice twist of in the back of your mind you always know I can send a group of planes over loaded up with defensive weaponry, drop the nuke, take out the target, and then you're always in this decision of is this the target? It's a big target, but my guys are well rested. Later on, maybe it's a little target, but your guys are kind of stressed and crazy. So when exactly do you parcel out these nukes? And so it's a nice decision-making for people. I love that the Cthulhu conflict, uh, it combines crazy people and nuclear weaponry. <laughs> <laughs> Rarely a good idea. <laughs> uh, there's also a leader, I think there's a couple of leader titles, and I know nothing about these. Uh, I don't know if they were just brief experiments or if they're ongoing concerns, but there are a couple of submarine-based leader titles. And I did see on Board Game Geek, there's a tiger leader. It has a different designer's name on it, though, but I think it's part of the series. Uh What's going on with uh, with with those? Uh, tell me about those. Right, um, Dave Schuler designed U-boat leader, which he did a great job in the design. He was able to keep the feel of the leader series while still making it World War II German submarines. That came out, sold great, and now he's working on the follow-up, which is Gato leader, which is the U.S. submarines in the Pacific. Our hope is to be able to publish Gato Leader around the end of the year and then do a reprint of U-Boat Leader um, because people really liked U-Boat, but they did want the American subs, so that's an ongoing one. Uh, Rick Martin did the initial design work on Tiger Leader, and he wanted to take the Leader series back to World War II, put you in command of German tanks and troops, and so we're working on the development of that one now. And I think that that's going to be a very popular game because, as far as I know, there aren't that many World War II solitaire ground combat games. You know, there was like Patton's Best a long time ago, but I don't know if there's been anything recent on that. And there's so Ambush, that, too. Don't forget okay, Ambush. You can't right, forget Ambush. Ambush. <clears throat> ambush. Um, so you have your tank commanders, you have your tanks. As the war unfolds, you get to command the newer versions of the Panzers and the Tigers. You get to go from battling in Poland to France to the U.S. to North Africa to Russia. And our goal is to have that be the starter of a new leader series where we take on ground combat. Uh, you have also recently released... Um I don't know that I would call this casual, but Cards of Cthulhu is, uh, it's certainly more casual than the leader series. Uh, what, what is going on that a, a game like Cards of Cthulhu, again, there's, there's no, uh, airplanes in this one. It's strictly right. Lovecraft. It's, uh, it's a, it's a quick solitaire game. Um, can we see more stuff like that from Dan Burson games? How did that come about and can we expect more of those? Uh, Cards of Cthulhu was an outside game design. Um, Holly, was on some of the game design forums on Facebook. And some of the guys there on the forums were saying, I have a design, but no game companies will return my emails or phone calls. You know, what do I do? And so Holly posted up, hey, we're a game company. You know, here's our website. Send us a design, and we'll take a look at it. And we got probably about a dozen responses. And Holly, my son Kevin, and myself, we went through the designs. And what really stuck out about Cards of Cthulhu was Kevin happened to be the one evaluating that one. And he was at the table. He'd set up the prototype. And he's laughing, and he's having fun, and he's cheering, and he's groaning. And that kind of attracted Holly over to see, hey, what's going on here? And then pretty soon the two of them are really enjoying the game, which kind of attracted me to the table. 
And Ian had designed a very elegant game. This is Ian Richards, is his name? Yes, Ian Richards is the game designer's name. And he designed this very elegant system where you play an investigator, gates are bringing Cthulhu creatures into your world, and if there's four separate boards, if you happen to have five or more cultists on a board at the end of a given turn, then they've overwhelmed the world. But in addition to the cultists, you also have minor horrors, major horrors, and unspeakable horrors, which can do lots of damage to you. And so you're making dice rolls, you're attacking them, you're playing special items, and you're using your special abilities. And you can actually play the game with one to four people. Each of you have an investigator. And it's a very low-complexity, fast-paced game. You can probably play a game like 30 to 45 minutes, try out the different investigators. And you're right, it's a very casual approach to what we normally do. And that's one of the things that we're also experimenting with, is to say, okay, we are doing these high-end, moderate-complexity war games, but with the Internet and with Kickstarter, we can now reach casual gamers, whereas 10 years ago we couldn't do that. So let's kind of you know see what kind of designs we can do with the low-complexity, fast-and-friendly end of the spectrum also. Uh, and tell us, uh, so Huey Leader, you, you said, is currently available for pre-order. Is that the next impending release from uh, Danvers and Games? The, we have a couple. Right now, the next game that's going to the printers is called Fleet Commander Nimitz, and that's part of the field commander, kind of the strategic level, and that mm-hmm. when you take over the role of commanding the U.S. Pacific forces in World War II, right after that, Tiger Leader is going to go to the printer. Both of those should happen in the next couple months. Following that, um, by the end of the year, we're hoping to have things like Huey Leader, Down in Flames, Locked On, Gato Leader, U-Boat Leader, all in some stage of going to the printer. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a really busy year for us. In addition to also kind of dabbling in kind of these low-complexity games to see how that goes through Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Uh and uh, so tell us, you, you obviously, you know, making board games, do you also play a lot of board games? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you have time? With You obviously spend time with prototypes and whatnot. Uh, do you also get to see other people's games? We do, and I have my friend Chris Richardson to thank for that. Chris is a huge gaming fan. He is a huge Kickstarter supporter. He goes down to the local game stores. He's like the guy to talk to to find out what is new and cool in the world of gaming. And from time to time, he'll give us a call and say, hey, you got to come over. This new game just came out. It is so awesome. Um, like the recent game that he pointed out to us, I think it's called Rivet Wars, and it was a Kickstarter and it has these very cool, quasi-cute World War One kind of guys and tanks. Oh, I bet Bruce would love this. Bruce, what do you think it, of this so far? <laughs> one thing, yeah. Bruce. And yeah, I, I'm I'm looking out to download it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and what he pointed out to us was: here's a company. They were able to get the Kickstarter funding to make very cool plastic miniatures, high-quality boards. Ah. This game plays very fast. It's very simple. You can do a game literally in half an hour. You should tap into this market. It is out there. There are people who want to invest money. Give them a quality, good-looking game, and you can do projects that you've always wanted to do on the lower complexity end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So we do kind of play games. Rarely do we play a game just for fun. It's usually in some relation to the company of, 
you know, normally brought to us by Chris. Uh, you got to look at this. And so we go over to his house and we play a couple games for the night. And it does. It's very inspiring to say, wow, they had really cool mechanics or, you know, they were able to get this funded through Kickstarter. We can do something like this. And so it really brings up our enthusiasm level of new projects to do. Is there any chance that you're going to get uh, – so now the Kickstarter funding model could get you some of that funding for digital versions that you otherwise would have to, you know, defer payment on until publication and then uh, royalty? Because I was just looking, and I see that Down in Flames doesn't seem to be available anymore uh, through Battlefront. Is that, is that the case? I'm honestly not sure. I haven't been in contact with Battlefront literally in a couple years. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. They might have pulled it from the site. Um, I know that the game did require like a server support. Yeah. And it was going to run for so long to complete the agreements, but that time might have expired by now. But, you know, honestly, you're right. Getting Kickstarter support to fund an electronic port of a game, as obvious as it might sound, never really occurred to me before. Hmm. And... I think it's an awesome idea. Yeah, because I think that the, one of the things that I noticed about your games is, and, and what I really loved about uh, Down in Flames was that you know you had these campaigns, and you know your your pilots would gain experience, and then they would get better. And one of the wonderful things about the Down in Flames uh, digital version was that you could uh, you know sort of fly pilots and count their victories until you lost them. It was this kind of sort of uh, Iron Man. Uh, right. type of gameplay, which I, I loved. Um, and I think that that would port so well to uh, sort of a digital uh, to digital games. Um, so if you are able to do that through Kickstarter, then uh, you should definitely try it out. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, one of, on the downside, we have probably talked with a couple dozen programmers over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that does happen with programmers is that they're very excited at the start of the project (laughs) and then start getting into the, you know, the heavy lifting part. And that's when they, you know, so one of the things that we'd have to really be careful of is we'd probably have to, you know, raise twenty, thirty thousand dollars to port it with upfront money for a programmer. Mm-hmm. Is we'd need to have a lot of confidence in the programmer, or else we'd be stuck in a situation with a lot of money in our pockets and no game to deliver, mm-hmm. and that would be bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe if there's programmers listening to this and they want to take a whack at it, we'd be happy to talk with them. Attention, programmers. Redo down in flames. Nope, Over nope, and out. Nope. Attention programmers. Belay that last message. Do <laughs> a computer version of Thunderbolt Apache Leader. Over and out. <laughs> Bruce, I just overrode your command. Uh-oh. We'll have to get the NSA to jam your communication. <laughs> uh, Dan, what other games have you tried that uh, maybe Chris has brought recently that have inspired you? I'm curious if I... It, it's kind of sad to hear that you can't play games for fun, but I certainly understand that. But there's so much awesome creative stuff going on in the field of board gaming. Uh, what are some of the other things that you've seen recently that have inspired you? One of the ones was... I. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. It was a Roman board game where you're all like senators in Rome, and you have to put out like your tokens on the board to say, do you want to bet it like the chariot races, or do you want to do this? And you're trying to collect influence and power and money, and like the first person to collect so many. It was like right, I feel like I know what this is. Uh, like Roman Republic or Republic Gloria of Rome. Rome. 
There we go. Republic of Rome. That's an old Avalon Hill game, though. Uh, maybe they did a new version of it. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the wrong title also. It was a Roman game, multiplayer, and you had to put out like your little, you know, where your workers were going to be to do different things for you. Mm-hmm. And then a similar game to that, which unfortunately I don't remember the title to either, it was a spaceship game where you're rolling six-sided dice and you're trying to establish like bases on the planet. Eclipse? And you, no, uh, no, that's... Um, Little plastic. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Why is Eclipse not a good choice, Bruce? It's totally that. So far, everything you said applies to Eclipse. It came out a couple <laughs> years ago. Eclipse. I'm yeah. standing by my guess. <laughs> it was basically like space. It's like Alien Frontiers or something like that. It, could, uh, it was like oh, the Yahtzee thing. Is it like yeah, Yahtzee? Yeah, like space yeah. Yahtzee. Yeah, that's Alien uh, Frontiers. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 See, isn't that much better Eclipse, choice? I still think Eclipse was a great guess, but go ahead. <laughs> and that was very inspiring. Of here is a game with great graphics, great mechanics, but it's a simple design. It's something you can explain to people in a few minutes for your non-gaming friends. It's a casual game. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of games kind of opened our eyes of, hey, there's a market out there. Because we come from the wargaming market, where a rule book had better be 50 pages with a thousand counters and mostly incomprehensible rules on how to cross a river. And you'd better have a game like that if you're going to sell a bunch of copies. And these are games that are fun, and they're colorful, and they have great pieces, and you can get in and out of a game in less than an hour and then go on to a different game. And those games wouldn't have been possible without Kickstarter. And that, kind of like how Magic opened up a whole new era in gaming, I think Kickstarter is doing the same thing. And so we're very happy and excited to jump on that. And... As our Kickstarters have gone by, there's like a science to Kickstarter of how to become more successful at running your campaigns. And so like our first campaign raised, I think, like $5,000. There's also been some failure campaigns. And then we like boosted that up to like $20,000 and $30,000. So we haven't like got the mega million Kickstarters yet. But as we go, you kind of get a feel for how do you run a successful Kickstarter campaign. And in the future, we're going to be opening up a couple Kickstarter campaigns that go right down the path of we're going to have cool plastic miniatures in a setting that we think people will really want to get into. And so I don't know if you guys have time to like do a follow-up interview here in like a month or two, but in the near future, we're going to be having some really big Kickstarter news for what I think is going to be a huge game-changing design for DVG. Wow, that's quite the bomb mm, to drop. Wow. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing about that. Okay, That's good. an exclusive. <laughs> it is. This is the first time I've ever talked about it. Um, other than that, it's just been Holly and I kind of poking around at ideas, and it's it will be really big for us. Dan, if Holly thinks it's a good idea, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> That's, use, use that as your, as your, your metric there, as your litmus test. <laughs> okay. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you hanging out and talking with us today. I have just, I, I, as a big solitaire board gamer, I, I just love the Leader Series. Uh, you've done some amazing stuff there. Uh, I'm super excited about Huey Leader to see how you're going to further that Thunderbolt Apache Leader model. Um, I wish you the best of luck with that. So, folks, uh, where can folks find what is the URL? I know it's probably hard to remember for Dan Verson Games. It is dvg.com. And you got in early on those URLs. I can we tell. did. <laughs> yeah, we get like weekly offers from people to buy the URL. So, 
Why would somebody want DVG? That seems oh. like somebody something someone would have randomly grabbed way back when just to squat on. But people still want it. Yeah, because it's a three-letter domain. I guess, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, and it has kind of a flow to it, and so. Right. Right. Good. Uh, well, Dan, thank you for joining us. Uh, folks, go to dvg.com. You can pre-order uh, Huey Leader uh, and the the other things that you guys... Uh, Warfighter is, I presume, available for yes. pre-orders. Uh, now, I don't know that you mentioned, when is Warfighter due out? What's the current it is, situation? It is at the printer now, so we're expecting to receive those games in about two or three months. So there's a boat somewhere that's probably being loaded with copies of Warfighter. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Dan, thank you so much for talking to us today. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so uh, there was Dan. Bruce, what do you think of the fact that uh, Cthulhu rising out of the the Pacific, the Atlantic, whatever ocean, that Cthulhu rising out of the ocean was caused by global warming? What do you think of that, Bruce? I think the data does not support any of this. <laughs> it's right there from, you know, Dan said that. It's probably in the rules or the backstory or the lore somewhere that he included with the game. Yeah, I saw that. I, yeah, I heard that. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Global warming caused yeah. Cthulhu. Ha ha. Concerning, yeah. Maybe you need yep. to reduce your uh, carbon footprint right now. Uh, this is probably in the game, too. Carbon, <laughs> how many, you know, the, the planes probably have a pretty big carbon footprint, so I don't know what... Oh, that's true. They're just adding to the problem, aren't they? Oh, yeah, 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 they should, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, by Dan's whole kind of uh, sort of trek through the industry. Um, mm-hmm. He, uh, his, his games really were, I thought, very much ahead of their time, or I don't even know what ahead of their time. They were very innovative and well-designed. Um, a long time ago, uh, which um, which is some it's amazing. I've never actually spoken with Dan Verson, even though I've emailed back and forth with him for years and and um, uh, played his games for so long. And I know you've played them for a long time too. But uh, it was nice to talk to him. Um, I really feel like uh, you know it's it's encouraging that somebody like Dan can stay in the hobby this long and make a living at it. Um, just by turning out what are basically a collection of really well-designed games, and, and very, yeah, very niche games too for for so long. Um, you know, he's certainly branching out with the zombies and Cthulhu thing. You can see that that's probably a market decision. It makes sense, um, but yeah, that he's been able to go for so long doing these little gearhead kind of looks at airplane culture, for instance. Right. Uh, I, I love that. Uh, well, it's interesting his comment about how, you know, he went back. I was, I was fascinated by that, and I'll have yeah. to, I need to go dig through the closet and see if I can find I don't. I don't know if I have my original version of, of Hornet Leader. I may no longer have it, but that was fascinating to hear him say, you know, I designed this game in 1990, and then, you know, uh, you know, in the 2000s, I pulled it out and said, Gosh, this game! Well, you couldn't do this game now. It's too fiddly, and it's got too many, you know, modifiers, and the, the print is too small. And you know, and it, it, it's funny that you know I, I pull games out of out of the collection and look at them now, and and some of the design just seems so dated. And and it's really to Dan's credit that he can go back and look at things and say, you know, I know it worked then, but I can't just reprint this. Uh, right. Or maybe it's yeah, it's to his wife's credit, I guess. Yeah, Holly, um, right. right? <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's to her credit that she thinks, um, you know, we should probably test this out 
uh, just because it worked in 1990 in a different industry doesn't uh, mean that it's going to work now. So, so kudos to him for for thinking of that, and uh, kudos to uh, uh, him for continuing his design. Because uh, I mean, I think what he's really doing is, I mean, it's a smart business model, which is you you have a, a design, you evolve it, you tweak right. it, you have a you have a it's clearly good. You have a core audience that's uh, that likes it and is going to buy more, I'm sure. So, um, you know, like he said, people don't want a completely different version of the game because that's not what they're looking for. Uh, so, you know, the designs are um, similar, but as you pointed out, you know, they have very def- def- uh, very definite uh, and characteristic and sort of game-defining differences. Yeah, it would be a shame to let something as distinct as Hornet Leader, Phantom Leader, and Thunderbolt Apache Leader languish in their original design. I mean, those are those are great candidates, and they all have unique selling points. Um, it's awesome that they've been updated. I, I looked at a list of changes on Board Game Geek under the forum for Thunderbolt Apache Leader. Mm-hmm. Somebody posted the question, uh, you know, hey, I already have this. Why would I buy the reprint? And, and that's a great question, by the way. Mm-hmm. And somebody answered him with this crazy, super long, super detailed list of changes. And reading over that list, you know, it must have been like when Dan and Holly pulled out the old version, took it to mm-hmm. the table, saw this didn't work. Reading over that list, I was thinking, good Lord, why would I ever want to go back and play the earlier incarnation? Yeah. Um, there's so many changes, so many different things that give it its personality, that, that make it distinct, uh, that are done in a much better way right now. You know, we spoke a little bit after we were recording with Dan about how you used you used these cardboard tiles in Thunderbolt Apache Leader, and he said, oh, in the original game, those are just those are just cards. You know, they would slide around on the table and get out of order when you moved your chits across them. Um, you know, the production values being brought to what we expect in modern days, a big part of that. Yeah. Well, that's really uh, interesting. His, his, just to, sorry, one yep. thing about the thing I didn't bring up during the, the podcast, but the fact that technology, technology has not just improved, you know, video games. Technology has really improved board games in, in the sense that you can really produce beautifully uh, games with really beautiful components for fairly cheap now uh, all because of you know uh, the uh, technology advances in printing and, and uh, you know I was just looking at some old, when I did some podcasts with uh, uh, some designers about Vietnam games that you had mentioned um, the uh, the production quality. I mean, so, some of those things you can clearly see. People took a ruler and drew boxes around things, <laughs> right? And then and then sent it to a printer because that's how they made boxes. And uh, and the fact that you can make a game now, like Dan's making, that I mean, Hornet Leader and Phantom Leader are beautiful. I mean, if you open those things up and take out the counters and set them up, it's it's a beautiful product. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that that is a big you know factor in its success. Um, but the fact that technology is so uh, has advanced to the point where you can do that, I'm sure, is one of the things that's kept him in business. And it, it even also, we're, we're, you apply different standards when you look at a board game these days as well. Uh, and that's just the, an example of the industry getting much better and doing many things much better than it used to do. Right. So that when I play Thunderbolt Apache Leader, my complaint, like what I'm thinking, because I'm constantly being analytical about a game, like I can mm-hmm. enjoy a game and I certainly have fun, quote unquote, mm-hmm. all the time, but I also do look at a game and think, okay, what things could be different? So my one of my kvetches about Thunderbolt mm-hmm. Apache Leader mm-hmm. is that you have a card for your airplane and then you have a different card for your pilots. 
and the airplanes all have a picture of the airplane. It's beautiful. It's a top-down picture, mm-hmm. glorious A-10 right. Thunderbolt. I love those things. The pilots have pictures, and every single freaking pilot looks the same. It's the same artwork. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you know, make some of the oh, it don't, and that's probably a cost thing. Yeah, I'm sure it's a cost thing. Yeah, but I, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, why does this pilot look exactly like that pilot, like that pilot? Uh, and the fact that I'm complaining about that, like that's the extent of what I can fuss about with Thunderbolt Apache Leader, I think is great. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, if you if you play the um, which we didn't really talk much about, um, but the 2007 version uh, of its Hornet Leader PC. Mm-hmm. Um, if you play that, then the the pilots are actually call signs. I mean, they're all call signs, but right, you know, like uh, um, Doc. I can't remember. Yes, Doc, Doc will be he's like uh, this. You know, a, 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 he is dead. Yes, and he's not coming back. Shut up! He might. <laughs> um, he's uh, he's like a, a a particular drawing, and then there's like you know some other guy. A hammer is like a big hammer. Um, and and just that level of of, uh, of distinctiveness is actually something that I'd like to I agree I'd like to see in the in the board game. Uh, it's just the the, the vanilla um, because because part of the part of the game is distinguishing your you know as, as you load out your planes each each particular loadout becomes sort of distinctive. Right. And as you use your as you use your ordnance, uh, you know that's the guy that still has the uh, you know the aim nines left, and that's mm-hmm. the guy that just has the cannon. And the, you know it's it's all it creates uh, sort of a, a each each plane gets a character from from that. Well, and that's one of the unique selling points, by the way, of Thunderbolt Apache Leader is the plane is different from the pilot. The pilot has the skills, the pilot has the stress. The plane, because there's a whole sophisticated damage model in Thunderbolt Apache Leader that doesn't exist in Phantom Leader or Hornet Leader. Right. You know, the plane is its own personality, and as I mentioned, you know, as those get beat up, that's distinct from the pilot inside of it. Right. So uh, I love that division, and it really gets down to that down-in-the-weeds feel that Dan wanted to create in Thunderbolt Apache Leader, is here's this plane, here's this dude inside this plane. You know, it's that level of detail, it's that level of tactical interaction amongst the systems. Yeah, um, yeah and I love that there. Uh, Alright, I'm going to be a jerk here, Bruce. Yes. Alright, since Dan isn't here anymore, I would never say this in front of him. Yeah. Right. I am going to say something that is, you know what? I feel justified doing this. He killed Doc. He killed my best pilot slash airplane in Hornet Leader. So I'm going to be a dick to him. Wow. I'm a little surprised, uh, and I understand time constraints, mm-hmm. but I kind of wish a guy like Dan would spend more time playing modern games, sort mm-hmm. of seeing what the industry is doing. Um, Dan does great work. He's got a great niche. I really like what he's doing, but I play something like his Cards of Cthulhu game, and as I think I mentioned on the podcast before, mm-hmm. that game has some issues. It's a great casual game, but I think there's serious uh, what I would call interface issues with that game. Mm-hmm. And I wish that someone like Dan, who's doing great, cool things, would spend more time looking at the games that are out now. So I'm a little surprised when he says, you know, it's always great to have a friend like his friend Chris, he mentioned, bringing in new games. But I'm a little surprised when someone like him, who's making games, isn't also playing some of the other, like, for instance, Victory Points solitaire games. Mm-hmm. You know, I want Dan to play those and get inspired by them right. and maybe, not steal, but, but appropriate certain ideas that they're doing and vice versa, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it always surprises me when game designers don't spend more time with other games designs. Yeah, I feel like the, the sort of the opposite of that is Martin Wallace. 
who seems to be very um, sort of up on all sorts of different game mechanics. Uh, I mean, he even says that the, his best game mechanics were game mechanics he he basically saw someone else using and he just right. kind of adapted them. Yep. Um, yep. So, uh, and and I think Martin Wallace is one of the best designers going right now. So I'm not surprised that Martin Wallace is very uh, educated about how other designers do things. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure that. You know, running a full-time game company and you know having your family go to the to the office and put games in boxes and you know because I'm sure that that comes off. You know, the the shipping uh, uh, pallet has a you know one box is full of boxes, and one box is full of you know counter sheets, and one box is full of maps. Oh, this sounds so tedious to put yeah, all those together. Oh, that's that's how I imagine that goes. So I, I would think that after a while. Uh, if that's your job, you know, nine to five and probably past five, uh, <laughs> you're probably not going to want to sit down. Um, and 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 to be honest with you, you know, I've, I've run into this problem myself. You know, finding out what the new hotness is in games and you know chasing it down and playing it is actually pretty time consuming. Right. So I'm I'm not surprised that he doesn't uh, doesn't go out and, and spend all of his extra time. Chasing down games that he is going to then play and try to get uh, um, get inspired by. I'm sure that at that point he would have so such little inspiration because uh, probably burned out on just the game part itself. So I, I see, I hear what you're saying, but I, ha- I have some sympathy for somebody who is playing, uh, is de- basically designing and printing and collating games, uh, you know, twelve hours a day to not uh, do that too much. Would it be weird and stalkerish of me to note that Dan doesn't live that far from me, and I could theoretically, you know, if he had like a, a free, you know, Friday night or whatever, I could theoretically bring him a game and say, "Hey, let me show you this." Is that weird? Should I? Should no, I, should you I follow should up do on that. that? You should right. definitely follow up on that. It sounds to it sounds to me like, uh, you know, if they're pulling uh, random, you know, family members' boyfriends in for playtest sessions. <laughs> Uh, it probably would be uh, room sure at the that, table for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you should. Yeah, or, or have him over for uh, for a shoe club. You, that, oh, you yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah just bring him over. Him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Southern California's not that big, right? He's got to he's got to be within uh, within uh, visiting distance. So, well, we yeah. all have we all have cars, and we're used to spending a lot of time sitting in them. So, I'm sure. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, you should do that. I I agree. I back that idea, Tom Chick. <laughs> Uh, I was surprised that Phantom Leader originally. I don't know if you remember this. There's the the iPad Phantom Leader, yes, which is, is uh, which is truer to the original version. I think that he and Holly probably played mm-hmm. um, in the iPad Phantom Leader. And I was aghast to discover this. There's none of those terrain tile things that block yeah. some of the chits. Right. It's just like wide open. Uh, and that's one of my favorite things about Phantom Leader, uh, that I guess is only part of the reissue. So, Dan, if you're if you're if you're listening uh, to the podcast you were just on, if you do take to heart Bruce's idea of Kickstartering or pursuing more some of these digital versions, only do the versions of the more recent releases. It's <laughs> my advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So uh, uh, again, we want to thank Dan for uh, joining us. Uh, so, Bruce, if I were to Hop into my car and go hang out with Dan and show him one game. Do you have any any advice? What what game should we show Dan? Oh, you should show Dan a study in Emerald. I agree. Very well put. All right. So 
<laughs> I'm all for that. Have you got Back a chance to play, or you just like look at it longingly and wish uh, you could play? Uh, I have not played it. I have opened it and set it up and looked at it and thought, wow. It's the first step. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh-huh. I, all right. we'll, we'll wait for a, a, a game report uh, from your uh, session with Dan. Uh, I could even make a documentary about this, by the way. Yeah. It would be like a little documentary movie of me bringing Steady and Emerald to Dan Virson and saying, here, play this. Here's yeah. here's an example of how to do some crazy Lovecraft stuff. Here's, exactly. here's another yes. designer's take. Not that there's anything wrong with yours. I love what Cthulhu Conflict does to frustrate me. Um, but here's another way to do crazy Lovecraft stuff. Let's play Steady and Emerald. Ooh. Yep. And by the way, let's get Holly to play. I want to play Steady and Emerald with Holly and Dan Virson. Yep. That and was- his son. And his son can come along. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And his son's girlfriend. You know what? The yeah. more, the merrier. Uh, yes, uh, his 16-year-old right. daughter and her boyfriend. Bring them all. Yes, uh, this Chris home. fella who brings him games. Yes, right. Everybody, come on out. Let's play some Steady and Emerald. So. Sounds good. <laughs> all right, listeners, thanks for joining us. Uh, follow me at, at QT3 on Twitter. Bruce, you are at, uh, it's, it's Space Bush, right? No, you're close, though. It's Space Rumsfeld. Ah, right. And your site is uh, War Game Space. You love space, don't you? I do. I'm, I'm going to ask now. <laughs> Wargamespace.com to find Bruce. Um, and uh, listeners, thanks for joining us, uh, and we'll see everyone here next week. Good night.